Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fresh Takes from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Amy. And this week, we are thrilled to welcome back Dr. Lisa Damore. She's a psychologist who co-hosts the Ask Lisa podcast and writes about adolescents for the New York Times in addition to her clinical practice. She's the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, and Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Lisa's latest book is called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. She and her husband have two daughters and live in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Welcome, Dr. Lisa. Thank you. I am delighted to be back with you. Thank you so much. This is a dog-eared copy of The Emotional Lives of Teenagers that I have on my desk because I have three. Actually, I have a 20-year-old, so I have a little teenager plus. But I'm soaking in it, as I like to say. And you start with such a thunderbolt of realization, at least for me, which is for teenagers, powerful emotions are a feature, not a bug. Can you tell us how you came to that understanding? Well, it's one of those things, and I'll say this is true in a lot of this book, where I'm actually just laying out really well-established science, I think in some ways trying to bring us back to a baseline understanding of adolescence that is pre-pandemic, though informed by the pandemic, but really trying to level set again, because I think one of the experiences so many of us had through the pandemic was that we didn't know what was normal, what was not normal. Post-pandemic, we don't know what's typical, what's not typical. And so one thing we have always known about teenagers is that they feel emotions more intensely than children do and than adults do. And this is largely a function of a neurological renovation project at work in their brain where their emotion centers get upgraded, become faster and more powerful before their perspective maintaining systems get upgraded. And so there is a juncture during adolescence, we refer to it sometimes as having a gawky brain where their emotion systems are really, really on steroids, especially when they get stirred up. You know, if something you know gets them activated, their emotions can come on very, very powerfully. And they are not always able to bring that back under control as quickly as they would like to. So I can think of just a recent example. I won't give too many identifying details, but a, a teenager of mine at our dining room table joking around about something we've joked around about a hundred times, like how silly a, a given song is. But this song, all of a sudden, my teenager was in tears. How could you do that? And I could tell, like, this is about something that I don't even vaguely understand, but the volcano of upset 
that I just wasn't expecting came out of nowhere. And then you say that the whole point of this book, I think, is that you say that our our reaction as parents is too often like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, they're upset. What do I do? What do I, how can I make them not upset anymore? And that's not where we should be coming from. Not helpful, but totally understandable. And especially in the face of emotions that seem very strange, very irrational, very out of proportion. And I just want to like just put a pin in something right here or just like make a note it also often freaks out the kid, ah. right? The kid who is sitting there is like, I don't know why I am crying. <laughs> right. You know, part of me is obviously weeping. And another part of me is like, what is this about? Right? So I think part of how we stay connected to our teenagers is to really appreciate that it can feel very unsettling and strange to us. And we're not the only ones who are sometimes having that reaction to their very powerful emotions. But it does raise a question of what should we do? when we're faced with their powerful emotions. And what I'll say is going to sound really easy and is enormously difficult, but it's good to start with a simple instruction. To the degree that we can, we want to try to be a steady presence. So what we want to try to do is continue to stay there, be alert and available and invested, but not join them in the fullness of the moment. And the reason for that. There's a lot of reasons, but here's a really good reason. They're watching us and reading our reactions to get a sense of how serious the situation is. They don't always know, and their minds are not always able to give them a clean read. You know, that it's hard in adolescence. Things can feel intense in ways that later don't make sense to the same teenager. And so if our kid comes home and is like, I blew this test, and we're like, what? <laughs> right? Their experience is like, I thought I had a 15-year-old size problem, and apparently I have a 52-year-old size problem. Like, this is worse than I even realized. Right, right. So the goal of being a steady presence is actually to use our reaction to serve as like a containing function, right? to help bring things down to size. And what's quite remarkable is so much of that goes down wordlessly. So much of that goes down just in terms of how we hold ourselves in the face of a very upset teenager. And so that's why I like to start with that idea of like, first, be a steady presence. Like, it doesn't matter what you say, if that isn't something that you're able to do in the moment. But we don't need to be afraid of their unhappiness or feel like it's something that we need to fix, right? This is the idea that I kept coming back to as I was reading the book, like, right, but it's okay that they are crying about the mean text or whatever it is. That's okay. It is okay. So one reason to be a steady presence is that we don't actually exacerbate the situation by making the kid think, oh, holy moly, it's worse than I even realized. It's worse than I thought. Right, right. Another reason to be a steady presence is exactly what you're describing. Like, we are showing them we're not scared of your intense emotionality, right? That, and they need to see that, that we see intense emotionality. Like you say, it's a feature, not a bug. It comes with being a teenager. I am not scared of this. And I can stand by and offer support as you find your way through. And a lot of the book is how we support kids to regulate emotions, bring them back under control. But you're gesturing at something that I think is so important that runs through the book so much that I don't even know that I say it as explicitly as I could have, which is it is important for our kids to feel discomfort and to learn how to manage discomfort. And I think especially, I mean, so much of us were really rocked by the pandemic. I think that it's very hard sometimes for parents to look at a kid who's on in pain 
and not want to step in, stop it, make it intervene or make whoever made it happen, you know, fix it. And what we always want to be going to is a question in our minds of, is my kid facing something that is uncomfortable or is my kid facing something that is unmanageable? Almost always, it's just going to be uncomfortable. And then if the parent can say, yeah, my kid is uncomfortable, or you can even ask a kid, is this uncomfortable or is this unmanageable? And most of the time they'd be like, no, I'm just super uncomfortable, right? Like I don't like it, but I can manage it. Then what I would say to the parent is, okay, and this is going to seem strange, good. Your kid is now uncomfortable. You are in connection with your kid. And what they are going to start to learn is that they can withstand discomfort. They can find ways to bring that discomfort down to size, either by talking about it or finding something that helps them feel better or problem solving or finding a distraction. Like, you know, literally almost half the book is the strategies for getting through discomfort. And what I would say is that this book is both a defense of distress, right? Kids are going to have it. Parents don't need to be so scared. And it's also, I would say, this is a very strange thing to say, almost a celebration of distress in teenagers. And here's what I mean. When teenagers feel distress, they often learn, they often grow, and we get to stand by as they develop independent management of painful feelings. And when kids have independent management of painful feelings, they can do things like move out and go to college. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) So... There's something in it for them to learn that they can tolerate distress. Whereas if kids feel like they cannot tolerate distress or their parents cannot tolerate them being in distress. Yes, yes. The net effect of that is their lives get very, very narrow. Because if you can't tolerate distress, then you can't put yourself in a situation where you don't know how it's going to go. And if you can't tolerate distress, then you can't take this class. It's going to be super hard and you're just going to have to find your way through it. And if you can't tolerate distress, you can't just move to a new city and just see how it goes, right? So what I think runs under and through the whole book is this idea of like kids will be in distress. That's a done deal. No one needs to sweat that. What we want to do is build their tolerance for distress using their strategies and ours in combination so that they can feel unafraid of emotion and able to go out into the world and do their thing. Amazing. We're talking to Dr. Lisa Demore. She's the author of the new book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, and we'll be right back. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew, and believe it or not, this will be my 13th Nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro aunt at this point. Our family has seen a lot of babies. And as soon as they start standing or walking, I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360 degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at them. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. 
Hello, Hellions. You know we listen to a lot of podcasts that aren't our own, and today we want to tell you about a podcast that really speaks to us and will speak to any parent of a child with special education needs. The podcast is called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. One of my kids has an IEP, and I found this podcast so validating and so helpful. I feel better equipped to advocate for my child's educational needs now. This podcast is helpful for parents in many different situations, whether your child already has an IEP or you're just starting to wonder if they might need extra support in the classroom. Juliana has content for kids of all ages and for kids who are learning English as an additional language as well. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. So, Dr. Lisa, I wanted to talk about the pandemic for a second. I think, you know, largely, few that was weird. It's in the rearview mirror. I just saw a panel of teenagers yesterday be asked how the pandemic was affecting their ability to socialize. And it was funny because this was in 2023 and they were sort of like, it was last year. <laughs> they, they, they've moved on. And yet we're seeing there are statistics. They were real. There was a mental health crisis that for teenagers that increased during the pandemic that became scary and unavoidable. But you say that it also teaches us that we have to change how we talk about adolescent mental health. So explain that. So there's a lot in what you just said. First of all, I think for a lot of kids, they're like, yeah, it's over, whatever, I'm fine. And I think that's true. I think for a lot of kids, that's really true. And I think there's things that I know really can make that true. One is a lot of kids, but certainly not every kid, had a lot of support and buffering through the pandemic that made a huge difference where there, you know, people around them did great job of getting them through a very hard time. And that means that people around them had the resources, whether internal or external to do a great job. And so I think there are kids and I would count my kids among them where, you know, they got lucky. We are set up in a way that we could protect them and get them through. And so for kids in that situation, you do see a lot of good outcomes. And then, of course, the flip of it is there are a lot of kids who were just horribly exposed in a million ways, and they are very much still feeling the effects of the pandemic. The other thing that you're also observing, right? Like I've always said teenage years are like dog years, like a year yeah. for them is like seven years in our lives. And so they're like, wait, what? You're talking about 2021? Right. Like, <laughs> Why would we even go there? And so I think that there's something very true and very adolescently wonderful about that. Okay. But then the question of this mental health crisis and what we make of it. So of course, suffering surged in the pandemic. Of course it did. And what that means is that some kids who were fragile before became actually quite a bit more distressed and were really into a new level of difficulty. And some kids who weren't in trouble before or weren't fragile before became fragile. So we just not surprisingly saw a whole lot more kids that we were worried about. That was one side of the crisis. The other side of the crisis, which is ongoing, is it is basically impossible to quickly scale up mental health care for kids, especially teenagers. Caring for teenagers is highly specialized work. Very few of us do it to get good at it. I've been doing this for like literally almost 30 years. And I, you know, I mean, it just, it takes a really long time to develop skills caring for teenagers. And so we had a combined effect of a huge upsurge in need and the same already overtaxed population of clinicians that we've ever had. And so an inability to get care for those kids. So the two together is how I understand how we ended up in a crisis for some kids. Okay. 
What we're looking at now is parents who are surrounded by scary headlines. And I read the paper, you read the paper, and I read it, and I think almost every day, this is really scary to be the parent of a teenager right now or to be even a teenager right now and see headline after headline about adolescent mental health crisis, concerns about adolescent suicidality. I mean, these are all very, very prominent in our lives. And one of the things that inspired me to write this book is that so few of the headlines make any meaningful distinction between adolescent distress and adolescent mental health concern. That so often in the headlines, those are rolled up as one. Kids are in distress. And then it moves on to scary statistics. So my goal in working out this book was to help parents know, like, no, distress with teenagers, like, that's a Wednesday. Like, you're going to see that all the time. Here's how you know when to worry, right? And that so much of my work has often had a when to worry component, because I feel like that's how you can actually really reassure people is to say, like, all this that you're seeing, that is typical, even though it's very disruptive and painful. Here's the line to when to worry. So the when to worries that I really lay out in the book, one is if your kid is coping in ways that bring harm, right? So they're coping with emotions, which is helping bring the feeling down to size, but they're doing it by smoking a lot of weed or being really awful to people or, you know, taking it out on themselves or engaging in compulsive behaviors. So we we want to see coping, but we don't want to see costly coping. So that's one time to worry. Another time to worry is when the emotions are calling all the shots, where, you know, a kid is so anxious that the kid's not going to school or a kid is so low that you basically are looking at a depression that is leveling that kid's ability to develop. So we don't want coping that comes with a price tag and we don't want emotions running the show. And if you're not seeing those two things, you're probably looking at a kid having a rough day or even an up and down day, which is often what teenagers are having. And that's something as a parent to be aware of, to support, but not to panic about. I really hope. It's so interesting, like in writing this book, like what I want is for parents to feel like they can serve as a containing function. And part of how I can try to do that is to give them very clear parameters to say, if you're seeing this and you're seeing this and you're seeing this, this is typical development. And here's 14 ways to respond. And I think that's what I hope the book can provide is a bit of um, backing to parents as they serve in that role. And the one other thing I'll say that is probably the other main reason I wrote this book. We're not going to get out of this adolescent mental health crisis by providing more therapy to more kids for the reasons I said, like it's pragmatically impossible. We get out of an adolescent mental health crisis by improving the connection between teenagers and the adults right around them. And that's what this book is designed to do. Teenagers thrive in the context of relationships. They thrive in the context of relationships with adults who, as they say, get it. And so my goal is to try to have adults get it in the way that is most useful to teenagers. Can we talk for a moment about separation individuation, which is one of those things oh, yeah. like, oh, I know what that is. Didn't know <laughs> that, that was the name for it. But it's, you know, it's the moment where your teenager can't stand how you chew, right? And then it's developmentally appropriate. It's part of what they're supposed to be doing, even if it's, but that you are supposed to be their container while they can barely tolerate you. Like, how does a parent hold both of those things in her head? So... That is a section of the book, Why Your Teen Can't Stand How You Chew. <laughs> and it's probably the best subheading I have in the whole book. And I will tell you, this is one of those things where you get all your training as a psychologist. It's all very dry. It's all very theoretical. And then you actually start having your own kids. And you're like, oh my gosh, like this is what, this is what, they, were this is what they were talking about. <laughs> so that was my experience with the theory of separation individuation, which is, you know, 
a time in development where kids are like, I need to go figure out my own identity, right? And it usually hits like kind of smack on on 13. Like it's a very, like in some ways, very like you can almost clock it right at age 13. And, you know, there's this enormous body of very dry theory describing it. It does not do justice to what it looks like in your kitchen. Okay. So what it looks like in your kitchen and the way I wrote this up is like, it's helpful to think about your kid trying to develop their own brand, right? There, you know, that's what individuation is. Like I need to come up with my own brand. So what that means is if there's an element of your brand, which is still very coextensive with their brand, right? Because they're still kids and they still feel embedded in the family. If there's a part of what you're doing that doesn't fit with their sense of their emerging brand, it is very annoying to them. So, right, it might be your dumpy outfit. It might be your goofy dance moves. It might be, you know, any variety of things. But they're no longer cool. And you not being cool in this way is reflecting badly on my brand. So I need you to do things to stop doing things that don't fit with my brand. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then here's where it really gets <laughs> ugly. If there's anything you do that does fit with them, their sense of emerging brand, this is also a problem because they are trying to differentiate their brand. Mm-hmm. So you may have always loved Beyonce. Like you may have loved Beyonce for years. But if you're standing in the kitchen bopping to Beyonce and your kid has decided that Beyonce is now in her brand, she would be like, oh, Mom! what are you doing? (laughs) Right, right. You're ruining it for her by liking Beyonce. Yeah. And so the sum total of this is if you do anything that does not fit with your kid's sense of their emerging brand, it is annoying to them. If you do anything that does fit with your kid's sense of their emerging brand, it is annoying to them. (laughs) Everything you do is annoying to them. And that's 13. And that is typical development. Okay. So your question about like, how do we serve as a containing function? We don't take it personally. And I think that's the key, right? Because it feels so personal. You can't use your turn signal without your kid having a reaction to it, right? It feels really awful actually. And so the way that we serve as a containing function is we go, oh, here we are. This is happening in the homes of 13-year-olds everywhere. And then, you know, what I recommend is you can lay down some parameters. You can say, look, here's how you can interact with me. You can be friendly. That's my favorite. You can be polite, or you can tell me it needs some space. But those are the options. And what's really cool is usually around 14 or 15, as kids get into high school and they get into their activities and their interests, their brand consolidates. They don't feel like they need to defend it so fiercely. Your brand becomes your problem. And they become much more tolerant of our dumpy outfits or our quirky habits. So it's short-lived and easier to get through if you don't make it a personal thing. We're talking to Dr. Lisa Damore, author of The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. We'll be right back. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use fresh to get 
$100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen dot me. And use the code FRESH at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Okay, we like to say in part three, it's time for solutions on our show. So this book, as you said, is full of try this, do this, instead of just like, here's a big problem, teenagers are impossible and might have a mental health crisis. Good luck, everyone. It's not that at all. This book will make you feel much better about the teenager in your home. Let's go through some of the strategies that you lay out on this book. What are some of the ways that parents can make things better when their kids are feeling distressed? Well, that's what we want to do, right? Our kids are in distress and we're like, make it stop. Like I want it to stop. Both because I love my kid. And then let's be honest, also because like this is very taxing yes. for me personally. And it's nine o'clock and I'm trying to go watch Formula One and I want this to stop, right? I mean, like right. I live in that space too. And so I, I think it's helpful to voice it. That there's a lot of reasons why we want our kids to feel better. And, you know, it's not all entirely altruistic. And I have no problem with that. Like we love our kids and we we can't be it's hard for us to feel good if they don't feel good. Right. It's a more peaceful home, right? We all want a more peaceful home. And if one kid is being very dysregulated, then it's disrupting everybody. Everybody, right? Okay. So what I hope is new and fresh and useful in this book is the introduction of how we think about emotion regulation in psychology, which is so emotion regulation is our very boring term for the most important idea, which is you don't get rid of feelings. You just help bring them down to size. You process your way through them. The way we think about it in psychology is actually of, as having two different categories of activity that we can turn to. One category is managing emotions, regulating emotions by expressing them. But on equal footing, we also put managing emotions by bringing them back under control. And I imagine readers will be a bit surprised to see that I've put that second one on equal footing. And I'll tell you why. The story that always comes to mind in this, so when I was hugely pregnant with my older daughter, so she's now 19, so this was like 20 years ago. First kid, I was wrapping up a meeting with a senior colleague, and she knew I wouldn't see her till after I had my baby. And so at the end of the meeting, she goes, do you want me to tell you how psychologists mess up their kids? <laughs> like, I was like, yes. Because I've Save seen a couple decades, yes. I've seen this. And she said, they talk about feelings too much. Oh, and as soon as she said it, like you can picture it, right? You know, that they're standing over the child and, oh, you're having a big feeling. Let's talk about the feeling, whatever. 
And what she said is, you know, there comes a point where it's helpful to say, all right, you've been upset for a while. Like, what's going to help you feel better? And what I would say is that in the intervening 20 years, like the whole culture has moved towards expression or being the bad psychologist parent as the way to manage all feelings, right? Talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. Talking about it has its place. It is one of many options. It's not necessarily the best option. Okay, so getting to solutions. When your kid is standing in front of you upset, chapter four and chapter five each have, I think, like a dozen options for what you can do in that moment. Chapter four is if they want to express, supporting expression. If your kid wants to talk, helping them talk about their feelings. If your kid wants to go bang on drums and get feelings out that way, this is how you can feel really good about that as a form of expression, right? It's basically no cost. If your kid does not want to express feelings, that is okay. And I think this is a really hard place for us to be in the culture right now where I think the default assumption is if my kid is upset, the best and perhaps only solution is for my kid to tell me what's wrong so I can be helpful. That is not true. If your kid does not want to talk about feelings, that is okay. You have an entire other chapter of options for how that feeling can be regulated in really healthy ways. So they might just want comforts that they seek out themselves. They might want distractions that can help bring feelings down to size. You know, so long as they're not used too much, they're great. They might want to engage in problem solving. They might take your help in shifting perspective. They might take your help in changing how they're thinking about the whole thing. They might be open to breathing as a way to bring feelings under control. They might need a lot more sleep than they're getting. But I really aimed in this book to teach parents how to fish is sort of what I was hoping for. To not just give them a bunch of strategies, but to give them a framework for how psychologists think about this at all, which is you've got an upset teenager in front of you, you've got dozens of options, and only one of them involves your kid telling you what's wrong. Mm. You say in the book that empathy goes further than we think. Yeah, I think that our script, whether we are conscious of it or not, is my kid's upset. So the solution is they tell me what's wrong. I drop some fabulous wisdom on them, fixed, right? Right. Okay occasionally it goes down that way. But like in real life, we know that actually very rarely happens with teenagers. What we can say is often what can happen if a kid is in the mood to talk is they tell you what's going on and you say, oh man, that really stinks. And they say, yes, thank you. And they got everything they needed. So that's part of how we use expression to regulate feelings, bring them under control. Problem solving can have its place, but you got to go to that very carefully and systematically. And I I lay that out pretty specifically in the book. Can you talk about how to discern if you have a a teenager who's very dysregulated, lots of temper tantrums and like, well, this is a teenager, this is how they are. But the family is maybe starting to walk on eggshells around this adolescent and it's starting to sort of run the house. The fear of setting this kid off is running the house and it's probably going to happen anyway. How do you know, what was the term you used before? Like when to worry, when to change things, when does that come into play? Well, So that's interesting. So that borders up against grounds for concern, because one of the times we worry is when kids are coping in ways that cause harm, right? So if they're coping by being like, kind of like hair trigger pill in the house, right? And discharging angry feelings does give you some relief. But if people feel like it's starting to tear at the fabric of family life, like that's cost, right? And we don't want to cost. But what I would say, and I have a whole section on this in the book, is the first question I would ask clinically is, talk to me about this kid's sleep Hmm. and if this kid is getting enough sleep. And one of the things that we need to put on billboards and banners everywhere is that teenagers are actually supposed to be getting nine hours of sleep a night. Very few of them are getting anywhere near that. Some of them are getting severely below that. And 
it's hard in a way to write and talk about sleep because everybody's like, yeah, 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 yeah. We know. Like, you know, it's sort of boring. It's sort of well-established. But clinically, I can't even evaluate someone who is sleep deprived. Sleep deprivation looks like out of control anxiety. Sleep deprivation can look like depression. And so when I'm doing an intake and I'm trying to get to the bottom of what I'm looking at diagnostically, I will almost always first assess how much sleep the kid is getting. And if they tell me they're pushing six or seven hours a night, all of my energies will go toward figuring out what's getting in the way of that kid's sleep and getting those barriers out of the way, getting that kid a couple weeks of sleep, and then returning to the diagnostic questions. And so that would be clinically how I would walk up to a question like that. That is such good insight. And the hypothetical teenager, are they like, yeah, you're right, I do need more sleep? I would imagine that a teenager would be like, well, I have too much homework. And then I talk to my girlfriend at 11 because that's when I can talk to my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And then they talk until like their battery's dying on their phone that there would be resistance to, I can't get more sleep, even if they really can. Or are they reflective that that probably is something they need to change? I think you have to do sort of a one-two ninja move to make it work, right? So I think the first thing you say is like, look, you're getting six or seven hours of sleep a night. Like, walk me through your day. Like, talk to me like where your time's going. And I think it really is helpful to honor exactly what you're describing. They're like, I got three APs and I'm on the soccer team. And, you know, that to really have them tell you a day. What is interesting in my experience is often kids will then start to discover time in their day that could be used in a different way or could be used more efficiently. But I have absolutely cared for kids where they are using every minute as well as they possibly can. And they are still held together with scotch tape because they are so tired. And I will say to them, we got to figure out a temporary solution. Is there something that can come off your plate just to do an experiment? So I'll engage them in the experiment. Like, you know, it's very hard for me to assess what's going on with you because you are so tired. And I will say to them, sleep is the glue that holds human beings together. What I'm looking at, I could be looking at just because you're tired. So then let's figure out a solution even to see if a couple of nights, a couple of weeks where you sleep decently helps you feel better. Teenagers are receptive to this because one thing that I remember early in my training that I didn't believe when it was said to me, and I have come to believe it to be very true, one of my senior supervisors said, you need to work with the assumption that all teenagers secretly worry that they're crazy. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, how can that be true? But I think as they move into adolescence and their feelings become so powerful and they have that moment of thinking like, why am I crying about a dumb old song that didn't make me cry last, you know, when I was 11, there is that underlying question. And so in my clinical office, when they, now by the time they're sitting with a psychologist, like they are not feeling less worried about being crazy. So in my clinical office, when I say, look, like what we're looking at could be sleep deprivation alone. Oh, They often receive that as like, okay, thank you. You're not pathologizing me. You're not, and you're also not accusing me of anything. Like, you know, like you're working with me to try to sort this out. So I think the thing about teenagers is not only do they deserve to be treated with the dignity that we treat everyone else, they very rarely are treated with the dignity that we treat everyone else. And so if you happen to be an adult who does that, you get like way more credit than you probably should. Oh, gosh, this episode, I will be saving this and listening to this over and over again. Dr. Lisa Demore is the author of three books, including her brand new one, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable and Compassionate Adolescents. Dr. Lisa, tell us all the places that our listeners can find you. So you mentioned my podcast with my fabulous co-host, Rena Ninen, Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. And we just take a parenting question every week and we unpack it in 30 minutes and send people on their way, hopefully with some insight. And then I have a website, drlisademore.com, which has 
all of my resources, articles, podcasts, and TV work, all organized into categories, downloadable bookmarks. And then I put up all sorts of content on social media. So I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'll put all the links to all the things in the show notes. Dr. Lisa, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.